Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 46, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. An anti-sounding husky today. Oh God, you are. You, you were on your video the other day. Um, he posted this Prisma review of a new card for the Amiga and halfway through... It's like that sounding really healthy. <laughs> then suddenly, bleh. Oh, I've had this dreaded man flu now for a few days. I think actually this evening my girlfriend's glad to get rid of me for a few hours. Yeah, yeah, to stop all the coughing and sneezing. So oh. we'll see if we can make it through today's show anyway. <laughs> I've got an ambulance on standby. Yeah. Don't worry for the man flu. Uh, while I've been in bed, they're recovering from this uh, winter lurgy. You've been in some rather exciting stuff this week. Yeah, yeah, well, as Dan's been away, I kind of went to Leicester Retro Co- Computer Museum on my own, which is the next kind of city across. And oh my god, that place is like Valhalla. It's just full of old computers. There's like old virtual reality machines, everything there. I recommend it to everyone. I've done a little video review that's on YouTube, so check that out. We've met these guys um, at various like retro gaming shows over the last couple of years. Yeah, they're always in a corner with tons of old computers. <laughs> it's, uh... Well, they've always got the old virtuality, you know, the original 1991 virtual reality machines. They yeah, yeah. Maintain them, don't they? But. The one thing that, you know, everyone's kind of talking about that you uh, got your hands on there is possibly the most rare piece of Commodore Amiga hardware that exists in the world. Yeah, this is the CD1200, which was this kind of fabled add-on that was going to be added to the side of the 1200 so you Mm -hmm. can play CD32 games. And I kind of walked in not knowing this was there. Just looked at it at the back and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> it's the Holy it Grail. Be, it yeah. But for those but who... The, the guy was like, oh, there was 20 of them made, weren't there? I was like, no, this is probably the only one in the world. In case you've got no idea what we're talking about, I mean, cast your mind back if you're an Amiga fan. About 1994, wasn't it? All the Amiga magazines had this on the front cover. And it looks a bit like a half of a CD32 console, but in white. Yeah. And it was meant to be a drive that they were going to release to connect to the Amiga 1200 to play CD32 games. I think there was like two prototypes made and then Commodore went bankrupt and everyone assumed that it had been lost. Yeah, there was a picture of a prototype that had kind of appeared in a shed last year. (laughs) And like, uh, no one knew where it went, but it went to this museum, so it's in the right place and you can actually go and see it. So check out the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester. And uh, check out Ravi's video where he nearly broke it. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to lift it up at the beginning and I'm like, oh, I should stop now. So we'll uh, pop that in our show notes at theretrohour.com if you want to check out Ravi's video. And uh, I've got to get myself along there to check out that prototype. And it just looks an amazing place as well. Oh, it's so great. There. Yeah, we should do some in-depth stuff for some of the back rooms because some of the stuff that I've got there, whoo. I'm there. When I'm not contagious, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> now, of course, every week on the Retro Hour, we try and bring you someone who no other podcast has brought you, a veteran of the computer industry, someone who has been one of our heroes. And this week, my word, I think we've pulled it out of the bag. Oh, God, yeah. Um, He's just absolutely amazing. Stuart Chaffee. Stuart Chaffee. And he had an argument with Steve Jobs. He made Steve Jobs make that advert. The Super Bowl one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Now, I'm sure you're familiar who Stuart is. He was the host of the Computer Chronicles that ran for 20 years um, all around the world and also the Net Cafe as well. This guy really documented the rise of personal computing from its very earliest days, in the late 70s right through to the early 2000s. You know, probably the most exciting time in technology history. And he was there, you know, in the heart of Silicon Valley, around all these companies, and he documented the whole thing. And it was a uh, PBS, wasn't it? That's where that, it started, I think. That's yeah. where it started, yeah. And he's he's amazing. He's telling us, you know, all these 
really great inside tale. So this one's a real treat for everyone today. Absolutely. So Stuart's going to be on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. And of course, this show would not be possible without our very generous donators. And uh, I think it's fair to say... You've been overly generous this week. Yeah, we've got to do this list quite quickly and we'll be here all night. Uh, Deep breath, Ravi. Yeah. So let's start. Thank you so much to Luigi Fumero. Christopher Folds. Scott McDonald. Jonathan Kay. SJ Engeldow Trading. Andrew Hayes. Damien Page. Francisco Meza. Who've all made amazing donations to the Retro Hour podcast this week. Honestly, we're blown away by your support, guys. Really, really appreciate it's it. It's really great. And if you want to make a donation yourself, you just go to www.theretrohour.com and in the top right corner, there's a little PayPal link there. Click on that. Dead easy. Take your five seconds. And obviously, everything we get goes back into the running of the show. Thank you for your support, guys. Now, before we get to Stuart Chaffee, we've got some really interesting stories this week. We'll start with a sequel to one of my all-time favourite games that has now landed on the Amiga. Now, Ooh. did you play Another World back in the day? Yeah, I played Another World, and it was really tough because <laughs> you had to remember every little kind of sequence and every bit in the level. Beautiful animation, though. It was all a rotoscope, wasn't it? Well, it was, you know, it, it was probably for me the first game that I played that really felt like a cinematic experience. You know, it was such, such an atmospheric game, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it, even the intro, God... The intro, you could just sit there and watch like a film. Was that was great. all off like a floppy disk, and the intro was like yeah. four minutes or something, isn't it? Well, there was actually a sequel made to Another World called Heart of the Alien. Oh, I never knew about this. Uh, Not many people do. It was only ever released, I think, on the uh, Mega CD. Oh, well, okay, so hardly anyone knew about it then. <laughs> yeah, like four people in the world had one of them. <laughs> um, but this came out, you know, a couple of years after Another World, and you actually play... You know, in the game, you've kind of got the alien that helps you out. Mm. I forget his name at the top of my head, but you, you play as him in this game. So it's kind of from the other perspective. I don't think I ever got that far, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I finished Another World and I started playing it again recently. And it is, you've got to remember a lot of stuff, you're right. But I never played Heart of the Alien before, despite the fact that I've got a Mega CD. I've just, you know, never got around to playing it. But about two weeks ago, um, someone actually ported this over to the Amiga. Oh, that's so cool. So it means you can now download it off at Aminet, you know, burn it to a CD or the WHD load files and actually play Another World 2 on the Amiga. I'm going to have a go at that one and get back, actually. <laughs> that should be good. The requirements are a little bit higher than, you know, most Amiga games. I think it needs a 68030 okay. and a bit of RAM. But actually, what's really cool is they've done a port to the CD32 as well using the Akiko chip so oh. to optimise a game, and apparently it runs quite nicely. And also they've kind of mapped all the buttons to the CD32 controller. Oh, that's good, yeah, because it might be, you know, plug your keyboard in or something. That's always a problem. Yeah, I think on, you yeah. know, the joystick version, they've kind of done, you know, you've got to hold down a few keys on the keyboard to kind of get stuff or some weird combinations. But that is awesome. I mean, you know, it's nice when indie development continues on these old systems, but when you get a game that was a commercial release that not many people really knew about, but then it eventually gets ported so more people can play it 20 years down the line. That's, you know, that's nuts, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and kind of continuing the story of Another World. Yeah, so, great. Yeah, finally get to play the sequel 20 years after <laughs> it came out. So yeah, if you want to find out more, we'll, we'll put the links at theretrohour.com. Now, Sega is obviously one of our favourite companies. You know, we're yeah. both, I think, you know, apart from we all talk Commodore and Amiga stuff, but I'm a Sega fanboy through and through as well. Yeah, I've got my Dreamcast and my Saturn at home. I actually haven't got a Mega Drive, which I think I should get. I've what? got more of the CD systems at the moment, but I just love Sega. Well, I mean, at the moment, it's fair to say Sega, they haven't been doing very well over the last 12 months but we've got stuff like Sonic Mania coming out that we've mm, talked about yeah. that new 2D Sonic game uh, today I was watching uh, Daytona 3 Championship USA you know the yeah, trailer yeah, for that yeah I saw that that was amazing so Sega now it seems are kind of going back to roots and they've uh, put a poll up on their Japanese website asking the fans which classic Sega franchises should we bring back 
Okay, Dan, what, what, what do you think would be amazing to bring back? So you think of Sega's history... And they've got so many, you know, classic games that you, I'd kind of forgotten about. I mean, we were looking through the list of, like, the yeah. stuff that they brought out over the years. I mean, instantly, you know, one of my favourite games back on the Mega Drive was Streets of Rage 2. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Streets of Rage 3, I wasn't such a fan of. But, no, yeah. it was the second one, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, Golden Axe as well, of Golden Axe. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's kind of like, you know, Outrun 3, people have been talking about. And I see a new Outrun game, which I think, you know, with... You know, some of the, the Outrun, Outrun releases on the Xbox 360, for example, you know, Coast to Coast and that on the, the PS2 was great too. I think that is a franchise you could definitely update and uh, will be quite big. But I think it's also, you know, it's maybe a bit of a danger doing stuff like Golden Axe and Streets of Rage because they could be rubbish in 3D. Because they're so classic. Like, I play a lot of the CD systems, so Virtua Tennis mm-hmm. was like one of the best tennis simulators that you ever played. I just absolutely love that game. I still play that. Henman. Yeah. <laughs> it's great, yeah. <laughs> and uh, there were games like Skies of Arcadia yeah. as well, which were really nice. And, oh, what was the Panzer Dragoon? There was all these kind of later Sega titles that, you know, could have had a bit more life. Panzer Dragoon would make a nice, I think, you know, you could make that look beautiful today, couldn't you, with today's technology? Oh, yeah, definitely. Or even VR. Actually, that would be a really good VR game, wouldn't it? That would work really well. So, I mean, it's good that Sega are now kind of looking to their past and asking the fans finally, because um, obviously they're not what they used to be. Yeah, and they're not going to be coming back soon, so they need to kind of build up well, it's great a, that the, a decent fan base again. Well, they have these franchises that they're not using, so it makes sense, you know, to finally, you know, it's great that they're going to be talking to the fans. And, you know, we, we mentioned about six months ago on this show that they'd released a um, an update of the old 3D games on the 3DS. Do you remember? We talked yeah. about that in the summer. And they only released that in Japan, but actually they've just launched it here in the UK now, finally. So, you know, if you're looking for stocking fillers for Christmas. Echo the Dolphin in VR. <laughs> yeah. You play the dolphin. That's it. <laughs> I, can't, I can't make the dolphin sound. No, it's not going to work. <laughs> now, uh, another game from back in the day that is back. Sensible Soccer's had an update. Oh, yes. And this is crazy. This is a 2016 and 17 update. What? So this is Sensible World of Soccer, the original and you can download it for multiple formats. So there's the Amiga version, there's a DOS version as well. And this is absolutely crazy. I think the DOS version probably works on a on a kind of emulator. Yeah, run it in DOSBox or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they've done an update from fans for fans, and they've done worldwide accurate team data. So if you've ever played Sensible World of Soccer, you can add in every player, you can add in the skin colour, the hair, you can mm-hmm. add in you know, all their different attributes. And they've done that worldwide. They've got a, a career mode fully working, so you can have a, a 2016 career and kind of <laughs> take Leicester City to even higher heights again. And... You know, it's got online playability as well. So, yeah. We've been getting excited about, you know, Sociable Soccer, John Hare's new game, but the fact that this game from 20 years ago, I mean, you know, when they designed Sensible World of Soccer, it was kind of built modular, wasn't it? So you could update it every year. And I mean, yeah. that's what's kept it alive all this time. And I wouldn't have known about this, uh, but Aaron White from RGDS just posted on my wall and was like, check this, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that they were updating it, but to this level that you could do online play as well wow yeah, it was like, I mean there's still I still read about you know Sensi soccer tournaments happening all around the world yeah yeah and kickoff too as well kickoff they're, they're the rival ones you see. I think there's a few guys who travel around and they'll, they'll book a week off work 
and they'll go to like Germany or Norway or Sweden. They'll all meet in a hotel. They'll book it out to play sensible soccer for like a week. It's my sensible week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is. I've been invited to them before and I'm like, oh, you know, it's just crazy that 20 years after this game came out, people are still going to that extremes. It's yeah. like, it shows that a good game, you know, people will put energy into it and absolutely. keep it going. Great to see it updated as well. So totally. if you want to download that, we'll stick that in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Were you a fan of Kirby? No, I hated Kirby. <laughs> well, you might not be that into this story then, Ravi. <laughs> That's right. But they've actually found um, four Kirby games that were considered lost until this week. That's quite cool, because I know he was very popular. Yeah, well, these were Super Nintendo games. And what they were, have you ever heard of the uh, Satellaview? Never heard of that. That sounds insane. What is it? Well, this was, um, it was only available in Japan. It was kind of an early satellite distribution service for the Super Famicom. Oh, okay, so... They'd kind of be able to receive games through the cable. Yeah, well, you download the games over the air over satellite. Oh, yeah. So the thing about it is it downloaded it onto um, a special cartridge that had like some kind of flash memory inside. Oh. So it stored the game for a while. You could only have, uh, I think, just one game on there at a time. And you kind of wipe your cartridge when a new game came over the air. But the thing is, uh, because these were kind of flash ROM based, they lose their contents over time. So I think it was, I've read there was about 200 games on this platform. It was pretty big, but, you know, there was only a handful of them that anyone's got the code for existing today. So they've all been lost pretty much. Okay, so has somebody, like, found one of these old units with some on there now? Well, one came up on an auction website in Japan. Yeah, so I think um, a team of retro collectors got hold of it and they've dumped the ROMs and now people can download them and play them. Yes, victory. You've re- revived these games. <laughs> you know? so, but it does make an interesting point. I mean, Ars Technica have done a, an article about it here and they've kind of gone into... Um, the problem that we're going to have in the future of digital preservation, uh, because now, you know, more, you, you imagine you now that model there we mentioned about downloading stuff and it gets put onto a media that, you know, you might write over or it breaks eventually and not having physical formats, you know, that, that's probably going to be more of a problem now that stuff like Steam, for example, what happens when those servers get shut down in like 10, 20 years or the hard disk is all broken? It's, uh... Well, I think in these last 20 or 30 years, we've probably lived through the time that media changes so mm-hmm. quickly. You know, you've had, such short lives for things that um, it gets massively complex when you're storing like big amounts of information and you want to get into those archives. Like, you know, the ultimate media's paper, isn't it? That's the one yeah. that lasts the longest. Well, the same here. I um, mean, you know, Sony shut down PlayStation Mobile last year, and that means, you know, loads of uh, Vita titles from indie developments have just gone. You can't get them anymore. And uh, Xbox Live indie games um, is going to shut down next year, apparently. Wow. So it's kind of like developers or people that are interested in preserving the history of computers and gaming, it's important that we kind of think about this and do preserve these games before you get to this stage where, oh, that thing from 20 years ago is great, but no one's got a copy of it anymore. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo, have a think about this. It's important stuff. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, important stuff, don't let Ravi anywhere near your uh, very expensive MacBook, your, uh, your new console, because very soon... You're going to have a USB killer. Ha-ha. I don't know if you've heard about this, guys, but um, you'll remember years ago, there was a, a very naughty cookbook that uh, people used to get online. Jolly Rogers. Jolly Rogers, yeah, and used to be able to create these floppy disks that you could put in and uh, destroy floppy disk drives. Was it match matchstick heads sprinkled on the uh, the media or something, was it? It was matchstick heads with sand, so <laughs> sandpaper, and it would kind of spark and create a... Yeah. <laughs> you, you seem way too knowledgeable about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I still remember it. But um, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, this uh, this kind of weird anarchist trend of destroying computers they used to have in the 90s. I used to remember some people would hook up electromagnets 
and then walk into Virgin Megastore and try and wipe all of the contents. <laughs> Not you, obviously. No, 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 just some of my friends. Yeah. And uh, there's a new device that's come out. Um, this is for testing surge protection, apparently. Not for damaging things. Not for damaging things. And it's called the USB Killer. And it's pretty crazy. It's a small little device that you can plug into any USB drive and it will basically deliver... 300 volts of DC power. Wow. Which is kind of like your mains power supply. More, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, straight into the computer and fry all the components. So people have been doing this on, what is it, Xbox Ones? I've been seeing this all over YouTube in the last couple of weeks. And yeah, there there is a few YouTube channels where people are buying, like, you know, brand new 1,700-pound MacBook Pros. These are guys who saw yesterday on a brand new PlayStation Pro and Xbox One Slim plugging this into the USB port to see if, you know, there's inbuilt protection in these devices, and there's actually not in most of them. No, it's just literally frying these boards. Well, if you ever get one of these, don't leave it lying around your house because you don't want to plug that in by mistake. But I've been reading about, I mean, you mentioned kind of going back to the 90s and Jolly Rogers' cookbook. Every kid at school had a floppy disk copy of that, didn't they? And we'd read it. I mean, half of the stuff on there you could never get hold of in a million years. It was more just you felt cool having this kind of, you know, illegal book on a floppy disk. Well, the thing for me was the blue boxing and all the different freaking. I used to do a lot of that with the uh, kind of plans off there. It was very good fun. You just felt elite having it there, didn't you? Yeah, it's like, totally you know, elite, yeah. But I, I imagine <laughs> with this, though, I mean, how many kids are going to start buying these off, like, you know, websites and bringing them into school? Or into the Apple store. Yeah, that could yeah. Be well, they haven't got USB ports on most of them anymore, have they? So oh, Apple no, might, true, Apple yeah. Be all right. Apple's protected, yeah. You just that's have to, why they did it. Yeah, the Thunderbolt killer, that's what you need now. See, everyone thought they were crazy getting rid of that USB port. No, no, wise, very wise. Now, before we get to uh, Stuart Chaffee, um, let's talk about the Indigo. This was a console that we covered in our um, one of our early shows, wasn't it? The original model of this back in like January. And yeah. There's this, an update on this. This is really cool because it was actually coming from some old Amiga kind of developers, um, A-Res Computer. And what it is, is it's a CD-based kind of ARM-based system that emulates tons of CD-based consoles and machines. You're talking like PlayStation, Saturn? Yeah, yeah, but also CD32, Mm -hmm. I think Jaguar as well. It does a hell of a lot of stuff. And um, they're kind of saying that they're going to have a little expansion for it as well. So... It will enable the use of adding 3.5-inch discs, so you'll be able to load your old discs in this system as well. This is an interesting project because it is software-based and you can download it and make your own, can't you, and put it on mm. like a Raspberry Pi or uh, an Orange Pi or an Arduino as well. Is that one of the platforms, I believe? Well, well I think it's going to be one of these kind of build-it-yourself things because they're saying here that um, you know you can choose different mini systems to run it. So yeah. you can have the Raspberry Pi, the Orange Pi, Arduino XU4. The Android, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and you could put a Blu-ray drive in there or whatever. So I think the idea is it's going to be this kind of shell that you can customise, you can put, like, sticky decals on it, and then you can turn it into what system you want, you know, your Saturn emulator, whatever. But the best thing about it is all of these systems with lasers, the laser's going to die eventually. Well, my PlayStation died the other week. As yeah, day, yeah, it? so, you know, you're not going to be able to play your older games on them. But this, you'll be able to play it on. 
Well, they've launched a Kickstarter at the moment and um, they're trying to raise uh, what is only meant to be 1,000 euros and they're already like two and a half thousand. <laughs> so they've done that with their 22 backers. Still 15 days left on it at the time that we're recording this as well. And uh, this is actually now for the software kind of and also an all-in-one kind of console as well. So mm. it is a hardware solution they're offering for this Kickstarter. Um, and again, I mean, you know, we've emulation, I think, if you do it right, and for me, it's better having an emulation, like a dedicated emulation system, rather than running it on Windows and you've got your virus checker popping up in front of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it takes, out the, <laughs> well, it takes yeah. out the experience, doesn't it, a lot of the yeah. time. But I think if you've got a dedicated little box like this that you plug it into your TV and nothing's going to interfere with the experience, then it can be as good as the original thing. And you know if you're a serious kind of CD collector and game collector, I think this is a, a really good idea because if your system dies, boom. <laughs> Straight away, you've got a backup to play on. And it saves wear and tear on your original laser and stuff as well, doesn't it? You know, yeah, if you want to yeah. take it to shows or at a friend's house or something, you know, if you've got clumsy friends like me. <laughs> That's it. You could spill beer all over this yeah. too, whatever. I'll yeah. buy another one. The Kickstarter's done running. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for checking out episode number 46 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next Friday. Available from all your favourite podcast clients, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, do leave a review if you're listening on iTunes, please. Yeah, and we even got a review on Stitcher the other day. What? Wow, <laughs> thanks, guys. Is that so, the first one? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, your reviews are always appreciated. Helps get us up the charts and stuff as well. What, we number seven in iTunes last week, weren't we? Yeah, Put yeah. Charts, I, I think I'll be doing some uh, checking on this week's episode and put them on the website to show our chart position. Absolutely. So uh, do tell your friends. <laughs> We're back yeah. again next Friday. And now for the next 45 minutes or so, I've been so excited about doing uh, this week's interview ever since we booked Stuart. For about a month you've been oh. excited, haven't you? Yeah. This guy is just an absolute legend. The host of the Computer Chronicles, a guy who documented the rise of personal computing from the very beginning. For the next 45 minutes on the Retro Hour, Stuart Chaffee. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome this week's very special guest, the host and producer of the legendary Computer Chronicles and Net Cafe. Welcome to the show, Stuart Chaffee. Pleasure to be here, guys. Really appreciate you coming on now. Uh, we can't wait to get some of your stories. Obviously, you know, your show kind of documented the rise of personal computing from the early 80s onwards. But yeah, really good. We thought it would be quite interesting to get a little bit of background on you. I mean, what was your earliest experience with a computer then? Where did it all start? Oh, well, I was sort of dying and waiting for personal computers to come around. I was a math major as an undergraduate and just loved the idea of computers. And I bought a couple of these way back in the late 70s, probably. Bought some of these little kits which you could build sort of really primitive basic computers. And then I guess it was when the uh, Radio Shack TRS-80 came out. That was the first one I actually bought. And played with and learned to program in BASIC and just I was up all night, you know, doing that stuff. Yeah, you know, it's addictive. And how did you get involved in broadcasting then? Where did that background come from? Well, that was really my main job. I was, at the time we started Computer Chronicles, I was actually running a TV station in the Silicon Valley area. So my day job was really uh, running a television operation. And my hobby was playing around with the computers. And at the, it's an interesting story, actually. At the time, I was messing around and you know, there wasn't really a lot of information infrastructure at the time. There was one magazine, maybe, uh, to help you solve all these complicated problems you have putting stuff together back in the early 80s. And I discovered the, the, best, the best resource was users group meetings. And so I went to a couple of users group meetings and I thought, this is a great idea. This is the best source of information. But there's only 25 guys here. So my idea is, why don't we put this users group meeting on television? You can have tens of thousands of people getting this information, not just 25. 
And that was really the, the genesis of the show. Yeah, these user groups are really uh, developing an information resource, and especially with the uh, California Computer Club as well. That was one of the really yeah, early ones. Yeah, actually, was the we started this with the guy named Jim Warren started a thing called the uh, don't remember he, he started one of these first computer. In fact, he produced the very first computer trade show in San Francisco back in 1980 or 81 or something like that. And he we actually started the show as a local show, and Jim Warren was actually the original host of the show way back when. So, as a computer hobbyist in the late 70s and early 80s, what kind of stuff were you doing with computers? Uh, basically learning programming. I think that was the, the most fun I had. And playing games. At the time, there wasn't a hell of a lot you could do with, <laughs> with those early, early computers. Uh, figuring out how to make them work and add stuff. And, you know, you had to be kind of a geek. And nowadays, you just turn it on and go. But, you know, 25, 30 years ago, you really had to figure this stuff out with uh, add-on boards and dip switches and all kinds of junk like that, which is why I and others needed help. And the theory, again, of the show was to make it easy for people initially in the San Francisco area and then around the country and then around the world to get this help. So what was the process of getting Computer Chronicles on the air then? What kind of challenges did you face and how did you approach the, the broadcasters? Well, the, very, it's a very interesting story. Actually, Computer Chronicles was viral before anybody heard of the word viral. Again, this was a local show. Uh, it aired, for, it was a live one-hour show on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. And we just, this was really just a bunch of, nobody was getting paid. It was just sort of a hobby thing. But even though there was no internet at the time, there were bulletin boards. And guys around the country started sending out little messages saying, you know, this is a damn TV show that explains all this stuff. And people said, well, where do you get it? And I started getting phone calls at our TV station from around the country, people saying, can we get to see this show? And we figured, gee, maybe this is a good idea. And so we started thinking about taking it from being just a local show and making it a national show and adding more production values and getting some budget for it. And the first task was to find a sponsor. And very interesting, you may be interested in this, the very first sponsor, major sponsor of Computer Chronicles was an English company called Microfocus. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. If it were not for Microfocus, we, may not have, we might never have had this show. They were expanding at the time. They just had a, an IPO and raised a lot of money, and they wanted to get some recognition. And uh, I don't remember where we met them somewhere, and they said, hey, this is a great idea. We want to sponsor your show. So with a little bit of money from them, we also had money, small amounts of money from Byte Magazine at the time, from Digital Research at the time. And with a little bit of money in the bank, we said, okay, let's really produce a, a national network level show. And the next year, we launched the show as a national show, a weekly half hour show. And you asked about how did we get talked to the broadcasters? We didn't really have to. The broadcasters talked to us because these guys who saw on their boards that we were doing the show started calling their local television stations saying, can we see this show? And then the local television station started calling me, saying, these guys are bugging us about this damn television show. Can we get it? And we said, <laughs> sure. So really just by answering the phone, I mean, we had no marketing, no sales. No, it wasn't a business. It was a hobby. Just by answering the phone, in a matter of a couple of months, the show was on 30 different stations around the country. By the end of the first year, it was on like 150 stations. By the second year, it was like 250 stations. And by the third year, it was on in 100 countries around the world with a Spanish version, a French version, an Arabic version. So it kind of just took off on its own. Well, obviously at that time, I mean, you were kind of there right at the start of the microcomputer revolution. I mean, 
before that, you know, it was mainly, you know, mainframes in offices and that kind right. of thing. Did it kind of feel like something huge was emerging then? It must have felt very exciting. It certainly did, especially living in the Silicon Valley area, you know, where a lot of this action was taking place, where Apple was being born, where HP was being born, et cetera, et cetera. The truth of the matter is I really made this show for myself because I wanted to get more information and more help on what I was doing. And I figured, well, while I'm doing it, I can share this with all these other people. So, I mean, I was, I was the audience for the show, not only the host and producer, I, I, I was the audience. And I think that really comes across, though. I mean, you know, you can tell that you had a huge passion for it as well. That obviously helped rather than just having someone who was a host of a show and not really into the, the subject matter. Uh, absolutely. You know, I never actually planned to host the show, but I, I, I loved it. It was my idea. And as we turned it into a national show from being a local show, uh, I started looking around. Who could I get to do this show? And it, it frankly took two different kinds of skills, which very few people had, which is understanding television and broadcast and telling stories and so on and the ability to actually understand the underlying technology. So I really saw myself as kind of a UN translator. I could talk geek to normal people, and they could understand what was going on. A really interesting thing for us when we saw it was all the um, different kind of machines that you were covering as well, such as the Amiga and Atari, which were really not massive in America compared to in the UK. No, no, but it's, it's interesting. Amiga and Atari, in fact, were some of our most popular shows, even here in the States. And to, today, the most popular show we've ever done in terms of number of downloads uh, online is the Commodore 64 show. Who would think? <laughs> what was your opinion on those machines at the time, like the, the Commodore 64? Oh, oh, I was a big Amiga fan. I mean, as you guys probably know, I mean, you could do stuff with the Amiga you couldn't do with anything else at the time. Graphics, the sound, the color. I mean, I love the, I still have, what, one, two, three, at least three Amigas right here. I know it's probably hard to kind of pin down, you know, one certain moment over a show that lasted like almost 20 years. But did you have like a favorite personal product that you ever had on or anyone that's kind of notable in your mind? Oh, so many, actually. And we had lots of, actually lots of funny instances that happened on the show. And most of the audience really never realized what some of those problems were. But uh, I'll tell you, for example, uh, I don't know when this was, but in the 80s, sometimes Xerox came out with the very first color laser printer. And I was pretty excited about output because at the time, I mean, output was dot matrix printers. It was pretty primitive. So number one, to get really fine resolution and to get color on top of it, it was unheard of. So we talked to Xerox and asked them to come on and explain what they were doing with this brand new color laser printer. I I expected some guy to walk in with a printer. The thing was the size of a Volkswagen. (laughs) It came on two crates. They had to assemble it in the studio because they couldn't get the thing through the doors of the studio. It was so big. And they had about five engineers with them, plugging things in and tweaking things to get, to get it to work. And they finally had, you know, this took hours of setup, just a damn printer. And the guy says, okay, I think we're ready to test it now. And this is the truth. The guy presses the print button and smoke starts coming out of his printer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like he blew a gasket or something. They had to start all over. They finally got it to work. And the output was extraordinary. I don't know if you remember, back then there was a, there was a classic sample color photo of a monkey of some sort that was the test of great color printing yeah, yeah. and came out. I'd never seen anything so gorgeous in my life coming out of a computer. Uh, we did a lot of funny stuff. Uh, we did a show on robots and as a demonstration of what a robot could do, somebody had invented a ping pong robot, a robot that played ping pong. And so we said, I don't know if you might, might've seen this on the show. In the very opening of the show, Gary Kildall was going to play this robot in ping pong. And so we set it all up and we're ready to shoot. And we assumed the sort of robot knew what it was doing. 
So it just it, it, we let the robot serve first. It smashed this ping pong ball right into Gary's crotch. <laughs> Gary, oh! <laughs> so we had to adjust the robot and start that show over again. That must have been a first uh, in history. I bet the robot's never done that before. Yeah, definitely a first. We had, uh, I don't know if you know who John Dvorak is. You know, of course, yeah. Computer writer. Uh, we had John on showing off at the time what was the brand new IBM PS2. If you remember, this was a modular computer that you actually take apart and put back together again, uh, like a Lego set. And it was meant to be able to easily upgrade things. And so John came on. It was good to demonstrate how you could take this IBM PS2 apart and put it back together, you know, within the course of the show. Well, he could not get this damn thing back together. <laughs> there was sweat pouring down his brow. And he was trying to figure out how you put all these damn modules. But he eventually figured it out. But uh, that was a unique idea at the time to be able to upgrade computers without having to buy a new one and having to buy a bunch of cards and boards. It was th these things that we take for granted these days uh, were not so easy in those early days. That's the thing. If uh, something's going to go wrong, though, it's going to happen with a computer, isn't it? It's, the, it's so unpredictable. You can imagine how risky this was doing a television show, with, you know, costing us a lot every hour for the studio and the staff and all that waiting for this stuff to work, and half the time, frankly, it didn't. I mean, the classic line from guests who would come on the show was, well, it worked fine in the hotel room last <laughs> night. I don't know what the problem is. And, of course, showing online stuff at the time was really a drag. Was, you know, download rates were extremely slow, so uh, it was extremely difficult trying to demonstrate some of these Internet things in, in, in when we got into it sort of in the 90s. But we actually, I, I've always been a big virtual reality fan. Of course, that VR is the big thing now. We did a VR show Back in 1991. Yeah, I was watching that the other day, actually. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And, I mean, I, I, I love that stuff at the time. I, you know, I, I love it now. Um, we had a lot of fun. You know, if you've seen the shows, you know, we went around the world shooting shows in maybe a dozen or 15 different countries. And that was great seeing different perspectives on, on what other parts of the world were doing with computers. I used to have a lot of fun. I, I was a big fan of speech synthesis. I was... Very frustrated that the input mechanisms for computers were so primitive using basically a typewriter keyboard. So we did a lot of shows on speech. We did a very funny thing once. Just about the time we were doing this show, a new kind of toy had come out called these talking dolls. I don't know if you've seen them where, you know, the doll can, you can talk to the, do the doll and the doll will answer the kid back. Yeah. So they had some speech recognition and a little speech synthesis capabilities. So we went to do a demonstration of this at a Toys R Us store. And there was this new whole, it was right before Christmas, so this whole shelf of these so-called talking dolls. And we never thought of what the consequences of doing this demonstration would be. So we picked up one doll and talked to it, and it talked back. And then another doll started to talk back. And about 50 <laughs> dolls were all having this conversation at the time, <laughs> listening to each other. It was a riot, but it really showed this thing worked. Because, I mean, you know, speech recognition, it took a long time to arrive properly, though, didn't it? I mean, even well, now, Syrian stuff is you know, only just getting there now, I think. Oh, yeah, I mean... I can't tell you. When we would tell a crew we were doing a speech show, they say, oh, my God, we're going to be here all night. Same thing when we were doing uh, a MIDI stuff. We did a lot of stuff on MIDI music. You know what it was like then to hook up a, a MIDI keyboard and get all that stuff working? Mm -hmm. So we told the crew, we're doing a show on MIDI music tonight. Oh, my God, we're going to be here all night. It was not easy. And did you ever have a guest on the show who maybe wasn't all that easy to get along with or not so personable, you may say? Well, I wouldn't say personal, but the biggest problem we had, you know, we would like to try, we would try to get the highest ranked person in a company to come in and talk about what their new technology was. And so we got a lot of CEOs came on. Mm -hmm. And what we discovered is generally CEOs did not know how to use their product. The biggest problem was they'd have to come in with some little techie guy hiding under the table somewhere saying, press this, press this, press that. <laughs> the, the hardest thing to deal with was these 
the CEOs of these companies who generally didn't know what the hell they were doing. I heard there was an incident with Michael Dell or something. Did you, you not have him on the show again after an incident? Well, it was a non-incident. It was what happened. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm afraid I've, I hold grudges. I've never bought a Dell product in my life. We tried, I tried to interview Michael Dell at some conference we were covering somewhere. And, you know, we've had everybody in the world on the show. I mean, Bill Gates, Larry Ellison, Steve Jobs, blah, blah, blah. He was very rude to us. I don't have time for this. What are we doing? So it was a non-incident. He's the only one we've ever dealt with that didn't cooperate with us. Well, you mentioned Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. I mean, uh, what was your earliest experience with them then? Uh, that must have been, you know, Well, very there's early. a lot to tell you about with Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. So when we first started the show back in 83, I guess it was, when we started the national show, we were looking, as I said, for sponsors. And, of course, Apple was right down the street from us. And we figured that's pretty logical. And they had uh, just come up with the Apple II. And so we, some of uh, people who worked for me were talking to some of the people on the marketing side at Apple, suggesting that they become the sponsor of the show. Everybody thought it was a great idea. I mean, this was perfect for Apple, it was perfect for us. And this, you know, went up and down the, all the executive levels at Apple, and they said, yes, 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 great idea. And they invited me to come to an Apple board meeting to meet with their board and chairman, Steve Jobs, to give the final pitch about the show. And we understood it was just sort of, you know, a courtesy that everybody had made the decision already. So I'm sitting in this boardroom with Steve Jobs there, who is just a very rude punk. <laughs> and I, I make my little presentation. He says, are you going to show non-Apple products on your show? And I said, of course. Then why the hell should we advertise? Why should I spend money explaining my competition? I said, do you take ads in magazines? Do you say the magazine can only cover Apple products? I said, this is exactly what you want. You want people who don't use Apple products. So you can tell them, well, we had a terrible argument. He finally said, it's a waste of money. I'd rather spend that money on a Super Bowl commercial, which led actually to the famous 1964 Apple Super Bowl commercial. Wow, no way. So you, you, you could be to blame for that commercial then. <laughs> I'm to blame for that commercial. Yeah, so that was, that was rather disappointing. So I remember watching that commercial at the time thinking, God, that was my money going down the train. <laughs> Was it obviously, you know, working uh, nearby? I mean, I guess you got to interact with a lot of the companies that were big around Silicon Valley at the time. I mean, being right on the doorstep, did that help? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, first of all, it enabled us to get the best guests in the world. I mean, everybody was, you know, most of the people we had on the show were, you know, 20 miles away or so. So it was quite easy. Uh, it was a big help. Of course, the one company that wasn't in our neighborhood was Microsoft. But we had a very good relationship with them. And, and Bill Gates was always a gentleman to us. He was very cooperative, interviewed him many, many times. Uh, very, very helpful. I, I always thought a lot of Bill. I thought he was a good guy, and I think he's proven himself to be a good guy with the, you know, with the charitable work he's done since he left Microsoft. Um, so they were the really two biggies, I guess, we dealt with at the time. The, actually, the nicest guy in the computer industry I've ever met and worked with is actually Gary Kildall. I mean, mm -hmm. this guy is my hero. He's the nicest, smartest guy I've ever dealt with in my life. And very instrumental, of course, in launching the show in the first place. He, his company, Digital Research, actually gave us the first, first sort of seed grant to let us keep on looking for other money. So he gave us a small amount of money, and he agreed to co-host the show. This was not easy. Gary lived in Pacific Grove, which is about 100 miles away. He was a very busy guy, you know, running digital research. He agreed to come and co-host the show. He used to either drive. He had a Lamborghini at the time. He would drive his Lamborghini up to our studio, or he was a private pilot. He would fly to an airport that was very near our studio, mm -hmm. lose his entire Saturday to help help us, 
I can't say enough good things about Gary. And it was an absolute tragedy when he died at an early age. I know even watching those episodes with Gary, though, you can see, you know, you mentioned what a warm, friendly guy he was and how knowledgeable he was as well. I mean, it's fair to say, Gary, you know, he's a genius, wasn't he? Not only a genius, but I mean, you know, I knew, again, we knew a lot of these big shot guys in the Silicon Valley. They weren't all nice guys. In fact, generally, they weren't nice guys. They were very competitive, very driven, uh, sort of very self-centered. Gary was a good man. He really cared about what he was doing. He cared about the trouble with Gary, unfortunately, was he wasn't a good businessman. Mm -hmm. And that's how he got screwed. And, you know, CPM never became uh, PC DOS. But, uh, yeah, the, the finest, finest man in the world. He was he was so, so good to deal with. And just a, just a good, decent, honest, really smart guy who obviously figured out some problems that nobody else could figure out, certainly when he came up, came up with CPM. Well, I know often when you read about Gary these days, he's kind of known for, you know, the, the guy that could have been Bill Gates is often the thing that you, the headline that you read about him. I mean, what, what happened, you know, obviously you were close to Gary at the time. What, what was the real story oh, behind that then? What, what exactly happened there? I'll tell you the story that Gary told me. Now, I don't know if this is the truth, but it's what Gary told me when I asked him about that. And it shows you what a decent guy Gary was. So there was a, they had an appointment for the IBM visit to come to Digital Research and Pacific Grove to talk about buying the CPM system for the IBM PC. It was a Saturday they had made this appointment for. It happened that Saturday was Gary's wife's birthday. Gary had promised his wife he would take her out flying that day on his, in his private plane. And he said to IBM, I'm sorry, I have a commitment to my wife. It's my wife's birthday. We can't do it today. Maybe let's try Monday. And that was why he didn't take that meeting on that Saturday. Wow. Now, here was a guy... There was a billion dollars out there for him. He said, wait, I have an obligation to my wife. It's her birthday. I made a promise. Sorry. That says a lot about him, though, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't it really? And, of course, the, you know, the ending of the, the business deal is, is another sad story. Again, Gary is a genius as a programmer, but not as a businessman. So you probably know the story when actually IBM then eventually came and they met with Gary. They had already, unfortunately, already met with Microsoft, which Gary didn't know about. Uh, and so they made the deal with Gary, yeah, we'll license CBM, but we're also going to license MS-DOS, and we'll let the customer decide. So Gary thought, well, that's fair. He was confident that they would pick customers would pick CPM over MS-DOS. What they didn't tell Gary was the pricing structure, that they were going to basically give away MS-DOS, but charge whatever, 100 bucks or something for CPM. So guess who won? You know, thing that didn't cost as much money. So again, that was just a very bad business decision that Gary, actually Gary and his wife, she really ran the business, uh, made at the time. They Again, they weren't smart business people. They didn't have lawyers all around them. They were real geeks, mm -hmm. and geeks don't always make good businessmen. Did that affect Gary much then in the, the years after? Oh, my God. That's why he's dead. Mm. Gary, it drove him crazy. Um, he had this re really great resentment for Microsoft and Bill Gates, uh, it changed his life. You know, eventually he, you know, got into alcohol. He started gaining weight. He wasn't healthy. He was a very, very frustrated man. He didn't show it. Uh, but, I, you know, even when we were doing the show for all these years with Gary, uh, but if I was going to bring on somebody from IBM or a competitor from Microsoft, you could just see his sort of shackles would go up. And he said, well, if you're going to show that, you got to show my version of that. You know, so, for instance, when, uh, you know, when uh, – you know, the GUI became a standard sort of Windows interface. You know, he had to show us the digital research version of that. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he always had something better. So it was, it, it was a delicate thing to handle Gary 
when we were dealing with competitors uh, for for uh, digital research. Uh, but he handled it well. He was a gentleman all the time. No complaints. He was a good man. And I thought it was a lovely tribute that you did to Gary, that episode that you did after he passed away. Uh, uh, absolutely. Whole show, I, I've, I've watched it many, many times because I, I love just reliving that. Yeah, he, I don't think Gary had an enemy. So he, and that's tough in his business. It must have been interesting as well having um, Jack Tremiel on as well because he was... Oh, my God. Yeah, well, he was a hero of mine being an Amiga and an Atari fan. And, of course, Jack had worked a lot with Gary. That's really how we got Jack on the show. Jack was really an interesting guy. Of course, Commodore was based back east in Pennsylvania, outside Philadelphia, not in the Silicon Valley. So it was a very different kind of company. It was really more like a washing machine company. I mean, they were really <laughs> not technologists there. They were just, how do you sell these appliances? And, of course, that's what eventually hurt uh, you know, Commodore and Atari because that was their mentality. They never really got into the Silicon Valley culture. They never really mingled with the Silicon Valley types. Uh, and, and that's why they made some mistakes. But they were very clever businessmen. And especially in Europe, as you know, I mean, they sold tons of these machines. So it was really an interesting balance between Gary, total non-businessman but tech expert, and Jack, total non-tech guy but a great business guy. They were really a good working pair. Well, Commodore, I mean, there the were, like you said, a big company over here. I mean, when, when I was a kid, everyone at school had yep. a Commodore and Amiga. I mean, do you, think, do you think they're overlooked in computer history by many of the... Oh, I absolutely think so. I mean, of course, they died. So, I mean, people consider them a failure, but obviously, you're not a failure. And as you well know, in Europe, I mean, they were all just that they didn't make it in the States because, again, they didn't have clever marketing. Um, you know, Commodore... Was not a was not smart when it came time to selling their products. I mean, they were the opposite of Apple, if you will. I mean, Apple was and Steve Jobs. They were the genius marketer. That, that was his greatest strength. He knew how to sell things and make people want their product. Jack was not like that. He just never understood the culture of these the people who were buying his products. Uh, I think, frankly, the Commodore and the Amigas and the Ataris did better in Europe because they were better products. Uh, in the United States, that doesn't always make it. If you have better advertising in the States, that's that's what wins. I mean, it goes back way back, if you will, to the Betamax VHS battle. Yeah. You know, I, I, everybody knew that Betamax was a better product, but in the United States, Sony, I mean, Panasonic at the time just did a better deal, better better job of selling the idea of VHS. Same thing really happened with computers. Um, was there a product that you thought would be like a massive success and it wasn't? That's a good question. I guess I guess the best one would have been virtual reality, but we just didn't have the hardware to support that at the time. I mean, I, I always thought the, the ability to, to create virtual worlds was fantastic. I mean, in fact, is what I did predict was the internet. You know, way back when. I mean, I was a CompuServe user way back. You know, like a 300 baud modem, or you'd literally see each letter print on the screen. <laughs> and I remember the first do- first time going into CompuServe. And sort of surfing around there, and I thought, my God, this is like this is like scuba diving. This is an entire new world I've never been in before. And you can just go anywhere you want. So I, it was before the internet, really, just at the time of CompuServe and a couple of the other sort of gated online communities. I said, this is going to be the biggest thing ever, and of course it is, and it was. Were you also aware of other scenes going on in different countries, like um, Sinclair? acorn and kind of Amstrad. yes absolutely absolutely i wasn't particular it so happens my wife is british so i spent a lot of time i would spend a lot of time every year in england so i was pretty much aware of what was going on certainly in the uk um and I, again we traveled around quite a bit and we, we shot in in india and israel and we never shot in the uk unfortunately we shot in france uh germany all over the place so we tried to pay attention to that especially as our 
show eventually became uh, distributed uh, around the world, we didn't want it to be too U.S. centric, uh, even though that was our main audience. But in the end, as I said before, we had more viewers outside the United States than we had inside the United States. So we tried to pay attention to that, but uh, it was, you know, it was still a show coming out of Silicon Valley. Well, speaking of the Mac, I mean, do you remember the first time you saw the Mac? Oh yeah. Well, again, you know, I had to sort of overcome my prejudices because of the animus between Steve Jobs and Apple and me. So it took me a while to turn around and become a Mac person because uh, I, I resisted them for a long time. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the graphics on that thing, the GUI, it, it was it was something new. And again, this was still it was just you know the original one was just in black and white, but the resolution was great, the interface was great. Um, a lot of games that come out on the Mac that really were better on the Mac than they were on the PC. Uh, they're never quite as good as they were on the Amiga. But uh, yeah, I, I loved that Mac at first, uh, and I had a whole series of them after that. I'm talking to you on a MacBook Pro right now. Well, you mentioned the GUI there. I mean, that must have been a huge change when, when that came along. Oh, my God, yes. I mean, I can't describe it. I mean, you know, having to use MS-DOS and write all these arcane little codes to get something done. I mean, it's a totally different world. The interesting story, I, I assume you know the story about the, the GUI interface and the Mac interface. I mean, that was stolen from Xerox Park. Yeah. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs would have heard what they were doing with the, with the mouse, number one, and with the GUI, number two, went to visit Xerox Park in Palo Alto, California, and said, wow, this is cool. And you know, the Palo Alto Research Group was basically a nonprofit. It was just a research center. And uh, he said, can we use that? And they said, Yeah. <laughs> Didn't see the value at all. Well, that's happened many times, hasn't it? No, they didn't. Well, I'll tell you another story. Let me tell you about YouTube. So for a while, you know, all our shows, besides being on YouTube, are on the uh, Internet Archive site, as you probably know. Uh, so I spent a lot of time working with the Internet Archive when we first put our whole collection up on the Archive. And then I was helping them actually gather uh, other kinds of video content for their Archive. One of the things we had started at the Internet Archive was something called terrible name, open source video. That was the beginning of YouTube. So we were allowing anybody who wanted to, without any curation whatsoever, to post anything they wanted, their video, online, and we would host it for nothing. So it was a radical idea that anybody could put any of their stuff of whatever it was, stupid stuff, bad stuff, up online for free and everybody could access it. Well, the guy who was sort of my boss at the time with the work I was doing at the Internet Archive, I said to him, you know, this is really hot what we've got here. We've got to work on this. And number one, change the damn name from open source video uh, to a better name and a better, friendlier user interface. Our interface was terrible. It was, it was four gigs by gigs. He said, oh, who's gonna, who's gonna, how are we going to make money giving away video and let people watch personal videos? I said, trust me, this will happen. Couldn't get the financial support to actually turn open source video into YouTube. YouTube knew what we were doing. In fact, I had talked to YouTube several when they were first starting because they wanted to make a deal with us to get all our content. And YouTube basically stole the idea, created a better interface. That was a very bad day <laughs> when we found out that YouTube had sold itself for $1.6 billion to Google and we hadn't followed up on that lead. And now cat videos are all over the internet. Everyone posts no cat kidding. videos. <laughs> but I mean, was, you know, I, at the time, I simply could not convince our management that this was a good business, that people would do this stuff. And we just blew the opportunity. You know, that's, it's still there, open source video. But uh, yeah, we blew the YouTube opportunity. Do you remember the first time you used the web? Yeah, I mean, it changed the world. I mean, it's pretty, it changed the world for me personally. It changed the world, period. There's no question about it. And it's a very interesting story you guys may not know. 
But way back when, in the mid-80s maybe, we had met with a guy in Washington who was running something called the M-Bone, and he was experimenting with putting video on the internet. It had never been done before. The very first television video show to be on the internet was Computer Chronicles, one episode. And that was in the mid-80s, was it, you said? That was, yeah, maybe 85, 86, something like that. Uh, yeah, that was a major, major breakthrough. So yeah, we'd spent some time working with them, how, you know, how you can use this internet thing for video, not only text. I mean, it goes without saying that that internet changed everything. Originally, we were just dealing with, you know, hardware and software, what you could do with a computer. Once the internet came along, I mean, half the new cool applications had to do with the internet, had to do with stuff online, had to do with communications. Yeah, I would say we went from 0% dealing with communications to, you know, at least 50% dealing with communications. And it uh, it created the, the Net Cafe show, which we just said there was so much of this stuff. We wanted to do a second show that was just about the internet, particularly, you know, the culture and the technology of the internet. So we did that Net Cafe show for six years. In fact, on that show, as we did on Computer Chronicles with hardware and software, we introduced almost every major development on the Net Cafe show. I mean, we had uh, Sergey Brin talking about Google. We had Jerry Yang when launch of Yahoo. We had the founder of IMDb. We had uh, just about every major new development on the internet we did on our show. Now, it wasn't a sort of a demo kind of show. It was more of a talk to the big people and talk about the, the, the culture of the internet community at that time. Uh, but yeah, we thought it was so important we created a whole show to cover it. And uh, I kind of love the name as well because there was that like 90s cafe culture that was coming right. about. And uh, I always remember every city would have an internet cafe. Interesting how that started too. There was a, used to be a chain of internet cafes called Cybersmith, which started here in Boston and then eventually moved to San Francisco. And they created these little internet cafes uh, around the country. And of course, at the time, many people didn't have computers or they certainly didn't have the ability to contact to use communications uh, with a high enough speed to take advantage of it. So I, would, I was hanging out at one of these Cybersmith stores and I thought, this is a TV show. I mean, this is ridiculous. Again, just, you know, 30 people sitting around a store drinking coffee, playing with their computers and discovering all this new stuff. And, you know, at that time, every week there was something new online and every day there was something new online. And a lot of it was, was really cool and really revolutionary in a way in terms of what you could do. And I said, this, we got to make a TV show out of this. And the computer chronicles was actually shot, shot in a studio all the net cafe shows were shot on location in net cafes, uh, generally around around the, the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, and um, yeah, it was great fun. I mean, we we introduced an awful lot of stuff. I look back at some of those shows right now, and look at the people who were introducing stuff that I never thought would go anywhere, and it became huge. Well, you pioneered sending our programs over the air on net cafe, didn't you? Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. That was extremely interesting. When we actually. When we started NetCafe, right, we were figuring, we're, generally we're talking about software a lot. And we were working with a company in, uh, in the Boston area, actually up in New Hampshire, uh, called PC Connection and Mac Connection. And we, as, at some point, you know, we moved our show to the East Coast and were under the corporate uh, management of PC, a company called PCTV. And they had three divisions to the company. One was the retail division, in which they had a big mail order business. Uh, Mac Connection and PC Connection. They had the second business, the television business, which was us. And they had a third business, a sort of research and development branch that was trying to just come up with cool products. And uh, the guy who ran that end of it had an interesting idea. We were talking on NetCafe about, so about software, but couldn't keep, put, 
people couldn't actually get it and play with it. A lot of this stuff really wasn't out commercially yet. So we had a discussion and they said, maybe we could use part of the video bandwidth on the television to take away some of the video uh, from that bandwidth and use it to send software down that line. And we really, and again, this was really pre-internet. Uh, and we kind of invented this idea of sending software online, real time, to people who were watching television. And it was very complicated because we had to get permission from the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission here in the States, to do that because it was illegal at the time to steal a piece of bandwidth for something other than audio and video. And I guess for a couple of years, we would, at the end of the show, we would say, we just told you about this product, now we're gonna download it to your <laughs> computer. Now they had to unfortunately buy this little board that allowed them to do that. So it was never a big hit because by the time, you know, a year or two later, everybody had the internet, they didn't need a little board to download stuff through the television. But video was such a broad bandwidth uh, avenue it was a great opportunity for us to send software to viewers on their television sets in real time. So we did really innovate that, but of course that got outdated very quickly. So um, during that period, it was the time that the uh, dot-com bubble burst. What was yep. it like in California? Was everyone just panicking? <laughs> well, you know, that was actually around 2002 as part of what burst was the Computer Chronicles. Uh, you know, we'd been doing the show for 20 years and things really got rough. But number one, the, the customers for this technology had changed a lot. By now, a lot of people had computers uh, and they were a lot easier to use now. So they didn't need a lot of the information we were giving them. Uh, it was hard to raise money at the time because so many companies had gone bust. Uh, a lot of people didn't have their jobs anymore. And it was, it was difficult, really. So that, that uh, Internet bust really hurt us very much at the time. There was a couple of reasons. I mean, I've been doing the show for 20 years and I was tired and I wanted to do something else. But on the financial side, it was really hard to keep, our show was a very expensive show. It wasn't just me sitting in a basement somewhere. You know, we had a whole staff of, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 people doing all this research and producing the show. Uh, and it became very hard to sustain that uh, because of that downturn at the time. Also, not only was there a downturn at the time, the industry got a little bit boring. You know, we started out, you know, the dominance of Microsoft and their software and their products. A couple of big players really started to dominate. Plus, with the Internet, you didn't see that much new innovation uh, in, in software or in hardware. It pretty much became stable. I remember having a meeting at the time with a guy who was the editor of Macworld magazine. And so we were talking to them about sponsoring the show. And very prescient thought, this guy said to me, he says, you know, when computers become like refrigerators, nobody's going to need us anymore. And he was right. You know, when it, when it was easier to use, when you didn't have to deal with going inside the box and opening things up and figuring things out, the, the, the need for the information that we were providing wasn't quite as it was before. And from a business point of view, one of the, one of the reasons we were very successful as a business was we gathered exactly the audience that advertisers wanted. Advertisers knew if they put a TV commercial on some show, even if it had 10 million viewers, you know, one-tenth of the viewers actually were potential customers for their products. When they advertised on our show, they knew every single viewer was a potential customer. That changed when everybody had computers. So the business changed, the downturn hurt, uh, the industry got a little bit slow with large companies dominating, and that's when we decided to actually take the show off. Well, um, when you uploaded it onto archive.org, did you find yeah. a kind of resurgence in interest? Uh, yeah, let me, that's an interesting story too. So. 
uh, on one of the Netcafe shows, I interviewed Brewster Kale, who was the founder of the Internet Archive. And after we did the interview on camera, we were chatting in the studio afterward. And I said, you're really, you know, very progressive, forward thinking about this kind of stuff. Let me tell you a problem I have. At this time, we had maybe several hundred Computer Chronicle shows we'd already done. And they were sitting on tapes, on shelves, inaccessible to anybody. And I said, you know, this seems really stupid. We've got this video history of the personal computer revolution, and nobody can access it. We, we run a show, it runs for a week or two, and then it's dead, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. I said, would you be interested in, you know, basically the Internet Archive started out literally as an archive of the Internet. They were archiving web pages. Wayback machine, wasn't it? Yeah. Exactly, the Wayback machine. And I said, what about, you know, expanding and doing audio and video? Wouldn't that be a great service if we could make all these shows accessible to people around the world for free? And he, to his credit, he said, damn good idea. We'll do it. That was it. We'll do it. We shook hands and they paid for all of it. We digitized all our tapes at the time, which was, again, probably 10, at least 10 years worth at the time, maybe more. And it was pretty primitive process. You know, digitizing at the time was a pretty primitive process. And unfortunately, you know, since our show had been on so long, we had changed tape formats like every three, four years as we went from two inch to one inch to beta, et cetera, et cetera. It was a huge job. Uh, but I'll, I'll give Internet Archive credit. They really supported us and it was great. And it, it really changed everything. Once those shows got online on the Internet Archive, tremendously broadened the audience for what we were doing, plus restoring the old stuff. And what really happened after that was, when, frankly, when people stole these shows and put them on YouTube. You know, the, all the shows are on YouTube. They're all pirated copies. I mean, I can tell you the majority of the mail I get is from out around the world now, not from the United States. And the amount of views we get now on YouTube and Internet Archive uh, are more, far larger than we ever had when we were a broadcast show, even though we were broadcast around the world. So, I mean, everything changed with not only the Internet Archive, uh, but with YouTube. So now being from the UK, we, we didn't have the show when I was a kid, but, you know, I've watched them all on the archive and YouTube. And it's like, you know, to me, it was kind of like a new show watching it like 20 years after it had been on. It's crazy. The amazing thing is, and the feedback we get on the shows that people watch online, I mean, it fascinates me. I get, you know, emails from 16-year-olds saying, this is the coolest stuff I've ever seen. This is so neat to see the history of this stuff. And I get email from 70-year-olds saying, oh, it's so great to relive those days. <laughs> so it's amazing the broad appeal of this stuff from kids to old people. It's great that you kept all the episodes as well. I mean, you know, many networks uh, will just tape over them like the next week. Actually, back, back to the question you asked a while ago, I, the truth is I never imagined there would be value in all of this. Uh, you know, to me, it was a TV show. You know, you do it and you're done. But thank God we did save all this stuff. And thank God we did make the deal with the Internet Archive to digitize everything. Because uh, I never met, to this day, we're still running a business of licensing footage from our shows. Anybody who's doing anything about the history of computers or the Internet comes to us and says, oh, can we use that clip from that show? Can we use the clip from that show? I never imagined it would have a life 10, 15 years after the show went off the air. But you did cover, you know, the most important period in computing, those 20 years. I mean, so much changed from the start of Chronicles to the end, didn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, pretty exciting 20 years. As a matter of fact, people keep on bugging me to write a book about that, about all the adventures we had during those 20 years. Uh, it's tentatively titled 20 Years on the Bleeding Edge. Well, um, we've also noticed that you were on um, the Twit Network with Leo Laporte, and we're just wondering what... Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. what's your opinion on these new kind of uh, internet shows or podcasts or new media? 
you know, people are constantly asking us to bring back Computer Chronicles. Uh, but if I if I bring it back, I want to do it the right way. I say this was not a cheap show to produce. I mean, it was a real television show. It took a staff. It took a lot of money. It took a lot of resources. And now with the Internet, I mean, you've got a thousand guys out there just sitting with some gadget they bought or got for free in their garage somewhere saying, let me tell you about this cool new product. That's not the show we want to do. I mean, the show we did had the best people, the newest stuff, and, you know, well-researched. Uh, it's kind of the stuff we talked about before. So uh, I'm really not, I, I don't really know what the market would be right now for a show like Computer Chronicles with so many little people doing these little things. Uh, though, as I said, I mean, every day I get an email or a message from somebody saying, can't you please bring the show back? We miss it. And I think about it every day. It's, it's, it takes a lot of money and we really haven't been able to put that together yet. But again, it would be, I'm sure it would be, you know, an online show now, not a, not a television show. Did you miss doing Chronicles when it finished then? That must have been a massive change in your life after 20 years. Massive. Um, yeah, I mean, it was my, I mean, really, I was doing it as a hobby. You know, frankly, nobody, I never got paid to do that. This was all done out of love, just as, you know, Gary did his part out of love. Uh, but I loved it, absolutely. I mean, I learned so much. I got to meet so many important people. Got to be right at the beginning of so many important trends. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a hobby for me, as it was for many of the people who were just watching the show. But it was a major change, a uh, major change. Uh, I had to readjust to a more normal life. And, and it was really exciting being right at the front of all this stuff. I mean, I mean, I had a really big knowledge base. because all I dealt with every day was what was new, what was new, and who was doing it. And, uh, yeah, I sort of got out of that loop. But, again, the industry was changing a bit at that time, too. Once the Internet came along and the technology changed a bit and we got into mobile, it became kind of exciting again. But there was sort of a slow period. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I miss it to this day. I mean, the only thing I do right now is tweet. And I have my own little uh, Twitter account where I, I, I do weird sort of technology stuff. Um, but, yeah, I think every day because people bug me about it, about trying to bring the show back. What technology does excite you today, then? What, is there anything you're looking at at the moment that you think is going to be big? Uh, well, certainly virtual reality and certainly mobile. I mean, they're the two biggest things in the world. And, and I think the interface between people and computers. I mean, you know, things like Siri and Alexa, I mean, that's completely changed the world of, of talking to computers and computers talking back to you. Uh, I think the security issues really interest me these days. I think most people are not aware of how exposed they are. Uh, how their personal information is exposed and how it's being exploited in many, many cases. So I'm really interested in sort of the commercial side of, you know, the sort of the good and the bad side of things like the Internet. Uh, but certainly virtual reality, you know, autonomous cars, the Internet of Things type stuff. I mean, plus the security issues, that, that's what fascinates me now, I guess, more than anything else. And, you know, I've always been a game nut. So I love games. I love uh, VR to me is as exciting to me as the first time I went on the Internet. And when you put on one of those goggles and you walk around in another world in 3D and I think, wow, this is, and I'm a big fan of people say, oh, what are you going to do? It's just games. It's not just games. We're going to see VR and all kinds of things in a couple of years. It's great that you've still got that. I can hear that excitement in your voice for technology and that passion for it after all this time. That's great. Oh, well, it's so much fun. I mean, really. <laughs> I think you know, I love this stuff. I mean, what's more exciting than something really new that changes the way you do things? And, uh, you know, excuse the pun, but I couldn't think of a better guy to chronicle the history of computing. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's so good that we can have access to all of this material that you made so long ago on uh, websites like archive.org and YouTube. And, you know, it must be great. The new generations are finding this stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, when you talked about missing the show, 
I really do miss the opportunity now. To, there's so much cool new stuff now that it really be a lot of fun to get back in the middle of that. I'm sort of on the edges right now. But, uh, you know, so many, the whole mobile thing is, I mean, that's changed the world, obviously. And that would be, and again, there's a lot of good and bad in a lot of these new things that come out. Um, it'd be a lot of fun to get into this again. Well, if people want to keep up to date with what you are doing these days, do you uh, have any way they can follow you? Uh, it's basically on Twitter. I mean, at Shafe is my handle. And I, I post weird tech stories uh, all the time. Um, so that, that's really the main output of my brain right now. Well, if you do start something new, you know, uh, Computer Chronicles 2.0, um, we'll, we'll definitely be talking about that. <laughs> well, Stuart, thank you so much for coming on this week. We've really enjoyed talking to you. It's been amazing. Pleasure talking to you guys. I really enjoyed it.